Good, good afternoon. We're going to do another panel discussion like we did uh, yesterday. Yesterday was pretty worked pretty well. We'd never done it before. That was number trial number one. This is trial number two. Uh, so, so we have two experts in psoriasis. I'm not an expert in psoriasis. I don't have a psoriasis clinic. I'm a general dermatologist and feel comfortable treating psoriasis, but I don't have the level of expertise of my other two guests, Dr. Gelfand and Dr. Koo uh, from, from Pennsylvania and from, from California, uh, respectively. So I'm going to go ahead and let them go first like we did uh, the other day, and then with any time that remains, we'll, we'll bring it up with my thoughts. If, if I have something that pertains to germ path or something, I'll interject it. But uh, other than that, we'll have these experts pre present their cases and their pearls for us, okay? So this is, a, this is an actual patient who I take care of, uh, actually saw her about a couple weeks ago. So she's a 75-year-old woman who has a 10-year history of psoriasis affecting her scalp, arms, legs, breasts, palms, and soles. Uh, in my own practice, I always like to uh, calculate what their body surface area is and what their global assessment is. Uh, global assessment is a way of looking at their overall lesions in terms of how red, thick, and scaly they are. And there's different PGAs out there. They usually go from zero to five, uh, with zero and one being like almost clear or clear if it's zero, and then mild, moderate, severe, very severe. So by having those two characteristics, it's able to help me sort of um, objectively follow the patient over time and see where they are. So, uh, so her BSA was 8%, her PGA was 3 and her body mass index is 23. Um, and she came to me as a hepatitis B carrier, uh, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and had a remote history of a basal cell in her chin. And her prior psoriasis treatments uh, include methotrexate, which she had a poor response to, ataracet, which she had a great response to, but it was stopped when she was determined that she was a hepatitis B carrier. Um, so I did a variety of lab results on her. I got a, uh, a blood count, comprehensive panel, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, quantifurin gold, uh, and of course hepatitis serologies. And these are the standard labs I order on every patient before I put them on immunosuppressive therapies. So I want to know if the patient's HIV positive. I want to know if they have hepatitis C positive. I want to know if they have a history of tuberculosis or latent TB. Uh, and I want to know um, if they have hepatitis B. So her serologies came back kind of, uh, kind of wonky. So her hepatitis B surface antibody was indeterminate for protection. Uh, hepatitis B core body was positive, suggesting a prior infection. Uh, her antigen was negative, which is good. And I did, no one, since I already knew that she had a history of hepatitis B, I did a PCR test. So that's a very sensitive test. Does this person have active viral replication going on? And here, her uh, H, hepatitis B DNA by PCR was completely negative. So the first question would be is, how do you interpret these serologies, these hepatitis B serologies? And I guess you know, we didn't have the time to get the audience uh, texting thing together. Uh -oh. So uh, we'll, we'll do it by the old-fashioned way, by raising hands. Okay? So one interpretation is that the patient is susceptible to hepatitis B infection. A second one is that they're immune due to natural infection. A third is that they're immune due to hepatitis B vaccination. D is they're acutely infected, and E is they're chronically infected. So, so how many people think she's um, chronically infected? Any hands for that? No one thinks she's chronically infected. Okay, anyone think she's acutely infected? No one for that. How about uh, immune due to natural infection? Any hands for that? People think she's immune to the disease? We have one hand for that, a couple of hands for that. Susceptible to hepatitis B infection? Anyone think she's susceptible? Boy, okay. Uh, and uh, anyone think she's immune due to hepatitis B vaccination? 
Well, we have a lot of abstentions in this crowd today. Yes, That's, yes. Okay. So uh, you can look this up. If you just uh, Google hepatitis B uh, interpretation at CDC, the CDC will tell you exactly what the interpretation is. And um, she, she's somewhere over, over here uh, in the interpretation area where she's basically antigen negative. Uh, she is core positive, and she's surface by uh, negative. So it means she's either had a resolved uh, infection, which is most common. She's potentially false positive hepatitis B core and therefore susceptible. Low-level chronic infection is possible, and resolving acute infection is possible. She, she's still in this sort of mixed bag, which is not exactly clear where she is. So what did I do with this lady? So the first question is, what treatment would you recommend? Uh, and so here, what I'd elected to do was to give her ultraviolet B phototherapy. So, so one of our options in this case, I mean, we probably wouldn't want to give her methotrexate anyway because it, you know she has a history of liver infection, and she also um, previously has not responded well to it. Uh, acetretin would have been an option for her, but given that she has a history of a, a liver infection that can have liver toxicity, um, she, we could have gone with things like um, uh, other biologics, but we're concerned about reactivation of hepatitis be. And so we decided to do uh, ultraviolet B narrowband phototherapy. Uh, and so she had 20 treatments of, of, of phototherapy. She did actually quite well. She essentially got clear. Um, but within weeks of stopping her phototherapy, her disease started to come back. Uh, she didn't want to go on another treatment regimen again because it was very inconvenient. It was expensive for her to the copays. Um, and also her scalp was her worst area. And so a lot of times when I'm deciding between am I going to give this person white therapy or not, you know, if they have areas like the genital area, uh, inverse areas, or scalp being the worst areas, you know, phototherapy may not be their best um, treatment option. So she uh, refused to do additional treatment with phototherapy at this point in time. So I saw her again in follow-up, and at this point in time, her biosurface area was 10%. Her PGA was 4, so she was worse than when I first saw her. Um, her scalp, arms, legs, back, and buttocks were now involved. Uh, and she also told me she spent about 10 hours a week doing scalp treatment. So I have a very complicated scalp regimen. I give people I like to use a, a tar... Uh, olive oil and salicylic acid preparation that they can leave in their scalp when it's very, very thick. Scalp, when the scale's very thick, they leave it on for an hour. They then wash it out with a zinc-based shampoo and then use ultra-potent topical steroids uh, like a clobetazole. That usually clears most people. Uh, at PEM, we call it scalp debridement treatment. It's sort of a, a um, version of, of, of old Geckerman therapy. Uh, but she was doing this 10 hours a week, which is way too much for her at 73 to put up with that, and she wasn't really making that much progress. So the next thing I do my practice, I have a formal way of assessing people's physical impairment and emotional impairment. And so here are the questions that I have my assistants asked, MA. Uh, we asked the patient, so thinking about how severe your psoriasis physical symptoms have been over the past week, such as itching, flaking, burning, and pain, how severe has it been on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being the worst, 0 being no symptoms? And for her, it was a 9 out of 10 physically. And then for, we asked her about emotional impairment. So we asked the same standardized questions. Similarly, think about how severe your psoriasis emotional symptoms have been over the past week, such as embarrassment, frustration, depression. How severe has it been on a scale of 0 to 10, 10 being the worst, 0 being no symptoms? And here she was 10 out of 10. And so there's two purposes to these questions, in my view. Uh, so one is, uh, many of my patients we ask these questions to, when we get to the emotional part, they can't even answer it. It's the first time that someone's actually asked them, uh, what is the emotional part? or disease, uh, and it's one of the first times I've had the opportunity to sort of really express that in a physician's office. And I think it's something that's very important for us to, to uh, address with our patients and, and, and inquire about, because patients may have no itching at all. You may say, well, how's your psoriasis? Is it bothering you? 
No. Is it itchy? No. So you think it's not really a problem, but they're incredibly embarrassed by it. It affects their quality of life in certain ways. And this gives us some insights into that, uh, in my view. The other thing is it gives me an objective viewpoint of how much disease bothers them. Because if I'm going to use drugs that have risks of serious side effects, I'd like to document both objectively on my exam and subjectively from the patient that this person, in fact, has disabling significant disease. So that way, you know, and sometimes things go wrong in this world. It's the reality of it. Of it. Uh, but if there's ever a question, well, you know, we, we cavalier using these drugs, Dr. Gelfand, I think it's pretty clear this person uh, is exhibiting very severe disease. All right, so the next question is really what is the risk of hepatitis B reactivation on a TNF inhibitor? Uh, and for here, I'll call your attention to an article that came out from the National Psoriasis Foundation's Medical Board. It was in the Blue Journal and JAD, uh, where they've basically, over the last um, you know, eight years or so, have come up with every single individual patient scenario you could think of and then wrote a review article on it. And so there's a really nice resource of information. The only thing I'd warn you about is that they should come with an expiration date, because you know, if you summarize the literature four years ago, things mm -hmm. change very rapidly. So you have to be very careful about when guidelines come out and are they really up to date? Is there new information? Okay. So this is what they report from the article, which uh, frankly was surprising to me. So um, if they're hepatitis B surface antigen positive, this I was not surprised by, they have a 39% risk of reactivating. Uh, that's not surprising because if you're antigen positive, you're, you're actually actively infected. Uh, but if you're core positive and antigen negative, you still have 5% risk of reactivating, which is fairly significant uh, in my view. Now, a lot of this is based on rheumatoid arthritis data, uh, where patients are on multiple different therapies at the same time. Uh, additional risk factors for, uh, that contribute to the odds of a patient being more likely to reactivate if they go on a TNF inhibitor are being hepatitis B. E antigen positive, which is not an easy test to order. Uh, hepatitis B DNA of greater than 10 to the fifth copies per milliliter. That's why I ordered the uh, PCR level when I started before I started her off. Uh, men do worse. Younger people do worse. Those who are co-infected with hepatitis C and those on uh, infliximab. So then there's this complicated table, which doesn't really project very well, nor is it easy to read uh, if you actually have the article. <laughs> okay. um, but she is, the patient is somewhere in, uh, let's see, in this box over here, in this box over here. Let's the points, there we go. Um, where basically the patient is, uh, has um, either chronic hepatitis B infection or resolved hepatitis B infection, but still susceptible to reactivation. And so what they recommend in that setting is just to sort of monitor the patient, and this is now from the package insert uh, from a Tanercept in this case, uh, monitoring patients who are previously infected with hepatitis B virus for reactivation during and several months after therapy. Uh, and if reactivation occurs, you would consider stopping Embrel and beginning uh, antiviral therapy. And so why is this issue so important for our patients? Well, so in rare cases, especially people who are on multiple immunosuppressants, typically TNF antibodies in combination with prednisone, Imuran, or other things for Crohn's disease, uh, there's been uh, reactivation cases that have been fatal. Uh, I have another gift coming my way. Ooh, look at this. Awesome. This one's even bigger. Look at this. <laughs> Let's see how the laser is on this guy. Look at that. Uh, All right. Nice. Should we start over? Should I go back to the first? <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, so there have been fatal reports of people reactivating hepatitis B, and this is a preventable situation. So you would never want to be in a situation where you took a patient uh, 
weren't aware of the hepatitis B status, put them on one of these drugs, and they had a life-threatening reaction. Because unlike hepatitis C, which is really a chronic, indolent infection, uh, hepatitis B could very quickly get out of control and cause liver failure when it reactivates and is, and is, and is, is uh, highly uh, infectious. Um, and so to me, there's a lot of lessons learned from this case. Uh, one is that uh, part of this prescribing information, you need to monitor ongoing for life while they're on a the drug. I mean, I've, I've treated a lot of patients in this situation, and frankly, after the first six months, nothing happens. I get bored, and I stop checking things so often. I just do a, a hepatitis serology periodically, you know. But according to the package insert, I'm supposed to keep on manage, uh, monitoring the viral levels as well as uh, the antigens. Um, and in this article, I think I recommend it monthly, which seems a, like a little too much to me. So I sort of do it monthly for the first couple of months, and if things are looking good, I, I then sort of spread it out. So this is what happened to the patient. I, tr I started with uh, tariffs at 50 milligrams twice weekly. Now, one could argue why not to start at, at 50 milligrams once a week. Uh, but, you know, there's clearly evidence that people do better at the higher dose and the lower dose, and this patient was really bothered by her disease. I wanted to get her better. Um, I followed her LFTs, hepatitis B antigen viral level, monthly. Uh, at 10 weeks of follow-up, so I usually see my new starts on biologics somewhere around two to three months, because I'm expecting at that point in time they'll have a good therapeutic response, and I want to assess for any side effects they're having. She was completely uh, clear. Detailed resistance was negative, so we're asking about things like jaundice, nausea, vomiting, things that may give you a clue that they have a, a uh, liver function problem going on. And then I lowered her down to 50 milligrams a week. Um, and so that's really the, the and then this sort of, I guess, additional file for her, because now I've seen her after I had to submit this case. And so her viral level actually has peaked up a little bit. She's now detectable, but not anything, like barely detectable on the uh, PCR uh, um, uh, quantification scheme. So she's still at very low risk for having any type of liver disease. But now I'm sort of stuck in a situation where should I monitor her every month for, uh, for life on this drug, or, or should I spread things out? So, John, what, what would you say? How often do you monitor a patient? like this? Uh, probably forever. <laughs> yeah, but how often would you do it? Would you do it monthly or every three months? Or would you probably like every three months. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know. What, what do you think? I, I, I also was thinking quarterly seemed, seemed yeah. reasonable. Yeah. Right. Anyone in the audience have experience in this situation treating people with hepatitis B? Not a soul. Not a soul. Okay, so uh, the, okay. some of you may have experience but don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not screening no, for it. Uh, how many people here screen for hepatitis B before starting people on a TF inhibitor? Well, maybe I should ask the other question. How many people don't screen for it, I guess, would be the question. You know? um, so, yeah, it's definitely an important thing to be aware, aware of. I don't know, John, if you have other comments. Or what, yeah. Um, you know, we come from East Coast, West Coast. Um, approach might be a little different. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. East, East Coast is better. Um, <laughs> uh, also, I'm actually kind of an old fat. Uh, I don't know his age, but I think I'm probably 10 to 20 years older than him, uh, which means uh, I did, did plenty of psoriasis before biologic became uh, you know, available. So my, my thinking, uh, biologic is fantastic, but also it, it's also good to remember the other stuff, you know, pre-biologic. And one of the pre-biologic medications, which is not getting much publicity, but very helpful in this situation is acetretin or soratin. Because soratin is the only FDA-approved internal medication that works for psoriasis but not an immunosuppressant. It's a modified vitamin A. It's a retinoid. It works like how retin-A help aging. 
Now, you know, where is that you know, stupid analogy come from? Well, when people don't want wrinkles and they put Renova or Retin-A, the vitamin A forced the cells to mature and differentiate. Psoriasis, we focus on inflammation. But the other part of the psoriasis is the cells are poorly differentiated, poorly mature. You know, they, you know the fully mature cells, you know, they die gracefully. But when they poorly differentiate, they're icky sticky. They hang on to each other. You know, that's why you have piles of dead skin. You get piles of, um, you know, of, of thickened skin. You know, so uh, this patient is 75, so you don't have to worry about um, you know, anybody, you know, any, any you know, reproductive problem. She's not reproductive. Also, it's just my anecdotal experience uh, over the last 30 years, but uh, triatin seems to work better for people who are older. I don't know why that is. You know, uh, maybe that the impact of forcing the cells to be more, um, you know, uh, more mature and differentiate might have more impact on older cells that doesn't mature and differentiate very well. In, uh, in, now, if you look at the package insert, they give you a ridiculous kind of recommendation dose, like 50 milligrams. That's way too much. Nowadays, people who know how to use horatin, they start with probably like 10 milligrams and tell the patient that nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, if, if the patient tolerates it pretty well, then go to like 25 milligrams. The main side effect is dryness. Now, the thing about psoriatin is it's not a sexy treatment. It takes a long time, uh, but it, it, in two or three weeks, the scales start come down. Another couple of weeks, the lesions tend to flatten. Once again, much more dramatically in older people than younger people. Uh, but the fact that it has no immunosuppressive effect uh, make, it, make the whole hepatitis issue you know, not something you have to worry about. Now, the thing about phototherapy is this is sort of an old art, but if phototherapy is too inconvenient, but if you add usually about 25 milligrams, maybe for elderly, as little as 10 milligrams a day of psoriatin with food, because psoriatin is absorbed better with food, twice as better with food than without, then phototherapy can become twice as effective with half the treatment. This is whether it's re-UBB, which is retinoid plus UBB, or re-PUVA, which is retinoid plus PUVA. So that's one way to make phototherapy more effective. Now, I don't know if anybody still do PUVA, you know, but if, if PUVA is still available, one of the big difference between PUVA and UBB is that PUVA is more cumbersome because you have to take pill, go into the light, and get the light. But the duration of therapeutic effect is much longer with PUVA than UBB. So with UBB, it does become inconvenient because you start out with three times per week, just like PUVA, you start out with three times per week. But once you're clear, you, you still have to kind of do once a week for UBB. But with PUVA, you can easily go to every other week, every third week. Eventually, they can go to once a month, which you cannot do ordinarily with UBB. And if, if psoriasis 10, 25 milligrams, or as little as 10, or this, this intermediate dose, 17.5 milligrams, for people where 25 is too much, 10 is too little then you might actually be able to make phototherapy both affordable, because if you don't go too often, you don't pay the copay, and more convenient. You know, so that is one possible option. Now, when, when somebody takes oriatin, it forces the entire body's cells to mature and differentiate. What does it mean? It means that the scales fall off. You know, the, the thick thing becomes flattened. What, what the retinoid is not good at is to get rid of erythema. 
you know, so, so, so the redness might persist. But 75-year-olds often don't care about the redness. As long as everything is smooth and nice, they say they're happy. Um, you know, so, so, <clears throat> so that might be you know, one approach you know, where you don't have to worry about the hepatitis issue at all. And it's also usable for somebody who had cancer. Because soratin, if you think about vitamin A, vitamin A is anti-cancer. You know, if you put like uh, Retin-A, you know, Tazaratine, you know, that actually make skin cancer sometimes even disappear if you, if you do it, you know, uh, high enough. It, once again, by forcing differentiation and maturation. Um, what that means is that whatever topical they use, for example, on the scalp that didn't work, once the patient is stable on psoriasis, it often works. Why? Because penetration is so much higher. Um, about almost 30 years ago, I actually did a study with topical uh, Sorolan you know, uh, to see how much is absorbed internally. And I have two articles in Journal of American Academy of Dermatology of my result. Uh, both uh, on the body and palms and soles, I could not document any absorption except for the people who took 25 of Soratin. Well, back then it was a chitinine. Um, you know, so, so that would be one way to try to, to maximize and optimize treatment without um, risking whatever. Um, you know, it, it, yes, we, sometimes we have to be brave, but if we don't have to go into the water, if we don't want to be bitten by a shark, <laughs> then I don't want to go into the water. <laughs> so, and, the, and the last thing is when the patients on psoriasis, and, when they do phototherapy, and if they're ever worried about skin cancer, psoriasis is known to have anti-skin cancer effect. So it might actually have several synergistic possibilities. Um, and then after all that failed, then I think about it. <laughs> so I, about first of all, this is a completely yeah. reasonable approach. And, and I offered the patient psoriatin. I actually use quite a bit of psoriatin. Uh, I think the general consensus psoriatin is not a very effective drug. Uh, so the odds are getting clear, almost clear in psoriatin. is monotherapy is probably on the order of 25%, 30%, and that's being generous. Uh, there are a lot of nuisance side effects that patients experience, especially with the dryness, thinning of the hair, things of that nature mm -hmm. that people don't always want to go through. And in this case, the issue is we don't know the effect this safety of acetretin in patients who have potentially a compromised liver, a person with a history of hepatitis B infection who could reactivate um, who's 75 years old. And so I think that one can make a logical case in one direction or the other. In this case, we have a patient who we know actually took a tariff in the past, uh, responded quite well to it, and didn't have any side effects as far as she knew, uh, despite the fact that someone then screened for hepatitis B. So in my view, uh, taking a patient who actually I knew was going to definitely respond quite well based on our prior experience and recognizing I could monitor her and her risk of reactivation as low, I felt as a tyrant that was probably in her best interest. But certainly, as a treatment would be an unreasonable thing to try as well. You know, it is true that the psoriasis would be disappointing for most people if you use it as monotherapy. I almost think of it as a primer. If you want your you know, house painted, <laughs> and, and if all you had was primer, <laughs> it wouldn't look very good. But it actually makes everything else works better. You know, so psoriasis can actually make um, phototherapy work better and more convenient. Topical, you know, therapy work better. You know, uh, but it, it is, you know, uh, he's totally right. You know, it, it's not a, you know, a sexy complete treatment on its own like some of the biologics that can really clear. And you do have to warn patients that number one, it takes a long time. Number two, you know, erythema, the redness, pinkness, might persist for a long time. It might persist for half a year before it disappears. Now, on the other hand, as I mentioned, for elderly people, I have been pretty impressed. Now, it, 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 you know, I'm just N of one. 
So take it with grain of salt. But, but I think for elderly, sometimes low dose thiazine can actually be like, you know, clearing, but still not fast. You know, they have to have patience. But a lot of elderly people say, I got nothing but time. <laughs> so, so, so that might not be an issue. But anyway. <laughs> are, are there some areas that, that you guys like to use seriatine a little bit more than, than other areas? You know, like palmar plantar pustulosis, things, things of that nature? Uh, the, the, you know, seriatine is particularly helpful whenever there's like over-the-top hyperkeratosis. Like, wow, that scale looked like armored plate. You know, if you, you know, once in a while you come across that kind of patient where topical not going to penetrate, light not going to penetrate, and then psoriatin can really penetrate. But the thing about psoriatin is, um, you know, especially when in older people where it may be more potent than you think, the, the fine titration is the key. And, uh, just to give you an, uh, my anecdotal experience, I had a patient, really nice guy, you know, who's uh, elderly and he looked like Buddha. You know, he's a big guy. I don't know how many pounds he is. You know, so, and he had a lot of thick regions. He had a lot of skin cancer. So I said, okay, psoriasis would help his psoriasis and skin cancer. But I, 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 you know, I'm pretty, uh, low dose psoriasis is what's usually used today, which is 25 milligrams per day with dinner. You know, usually people don't skip dinner. Um, and, and, I thought, and then I saw great response. I said, wow, you know, redness is there, but everything's flattening now. Fantastic. And then next thing I know, the skin, you know, when he came in, all the psoriasis area, many of the psoriasis area look raw, irritated. It's almost like superficially denuded. Now, what that is the known side effect of psoriasis, which is skin fragility. Now, skin fragility is if you went too much. You know, th there's too much psoriasis effect. You want to make thick plaque thin, but it's, it's becoming too thin. This, this is not the same as, you know, topical steroid skin atrophy. It's easily reversible. So I could have panicked. And I said, forget it. You know, this big guy like Buddha, he cannot even take 25 or psoriasis. Instead, I, I switched him to 10. Well, first of all, I stopped. You know, let the skin recover. And then I tried 10. And guess what? That was like 10 years ago. He's been clear since then. On 10 milligrams a day or so right then, somebody who's 200 plus old guy. You know, you know so, so exquisite you know, you know, adjustment of those. You know, sometimes you know, instead of 25, you might do 25 every other day. You know, or, or as I say, 17.5, 10. I even have somebody on 10 you know, every day alternating with 10 every other day, also an elderly patient. You know, so the art of using old medication uh, can sometimes be helpful, especially when you're stuck with cancer, hepatitis, stuff like that. Did you want to move on with your cases, Dr. Kim? Oh, um, so 27-year Caucasian female, five-year history of localized uh, psoriasis on the scalp, knee, uh, pretibial area, uh, used TAC 0.1% and TAC uh, cream and lotion, lotion for the scalp without much help, then switch to flucinonide, 0.05% solution to scab, still not much help, you know, so what are we gonna do? This is pretty typical, uh, because uh, topical steroids are helpful for many skin conditions, as we all know. However, some skin conditions react better than others. For psoriasis, is like the worst. You know, if you had eczema and psoriasis, on average, 
eczema responds so much better to the same topical steroid and psoriasis. And if you had eczema and seborrhea, on average, seborrhea responds so much better to the same topical steroid and eczema. You know, so having somebody fail on TAC and then even flucinonine for the scalp, not surprising. You know, so the thing about it is if a patient like that come to your office, you know, after they fail this treatment and that treatment with somebody else, and in addition to being frustrated, they might be kind of a little bit dispirited, disillusioned. You know, so uh, if, that, if I sense, like, okay, this patient is kind of uh, disappointed at dermatology providers, you know, maybe about to give up, then uh, psychologically I think about impressing this person. And, and the best way to impress is clobetazole. Now, sometimes superpotent topical steroid might make people feel a little nervous. But it's actually pretty safe. Um, if you look at the FDA's uh, data on you know, Clobex spray, that's clobetazole spray, uh, FDA approved one month continuous, twice a day use of clobetazole spray, where clobetazole is spewed all over the normal skin, as long as you don't use it on sensitive skin. Now, what does, does that tell you? That tells you that the USY study of clobetazole spewed all over the normal skin is not so horrible. You know, so a patient like this who, you know, who may really want some ray of hope, you know, I, I would be quick to prescribe clobetazole cream, clobetazole ointment, uh, you know, the clobetazole scalp solution, and as long as they don't use it on a sensitive area like face, armpit, groin, and so forth, I, I'm almost happy to tell them you can almost use it with impunity because I don't want fear to compromise the compliance as long as you come back in one month and you don't do it for more than one month. And most importantly, just put it where you need it. Now, okay, so, and then the other thing is I like to use my fingers twice a day. <laughs> You know, long, you know I, I'm old enough to remember Nixon. You know, Nixon used to do that. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, so twice a day, <laughs> and, and and I tell them explicitly at the get go. You know, once a day, you're not gonna get the best result. Result twice a day. If you miss it in the morning, do it when you come home and do it when you go to sleep. You know, that's still twice a day. Do you think some of that has to do with the vehicle as opposed yes. to? Yes, in the, in the old days, back in the 80s when I was a resident, I was, uh, it was drummed into me, ointment, ointment, ointment. But somebody by the name of Steve Feldman, who is a dermatology psoriasis expert in North Carolina, came into the scene, and he showed us how horrible the compliance is. Mm. You know, so his you know, new message is what I believe. What is the best vehicle? What the patient's willing to use? Now, if they're willing to use ointment, that would be fantastic. But if they're not willing to use ointment, I'd be happy to give them foam, gel, you know, whatever they want to use, spray. You know, so, um, so that's what I would probably do uh, and try to you know, really impress upon them the importance of usage, really try to bring down any fear. You know, there's some T-shirt that says, no fear. So I say, no fear. You know, you know they, they just trust me for one month. And, and then when they come back in a month, 
then, you know, then oftentimes they are fantastically improved, their faith is restored, then you can decide to do whatever you want to do for maintenance. Now, if, if I may just go ahead and talk about maintenance, uh, two approaches to maintenance. One is to go down to like TAC or something, you know, or non-steroid, because the, everything is under better control. That, that's one approach. The second approach you know, um, is to go ahead and continue clobetazole off-label, you know, beyond one month but use that less often. Mm. How, you know, like every other day, and then eventually going to weekends only. Now, that is all off-label. You know, but weekends only, clobetazole, how dangerous is that? I have yet to see any patient present with skin atrophy, weekends only, clobetazole. I don't think it really happens. Now, it's not just my experience. Long times ago, about 15, 20 years ago, I came out with this thing called sequential therapy, which some people still practice. Sequential therapy is rabbit to turtle idea. You know, rabbit is first you hit them topically with superbolin topical steroid and like Dovonex, you know, non-steroid, every day, step one. And then there's transition, this weekday, non-steroid, weekend, steroid, which is super potent topical steroid, and step three, which is pure maintenance, just non-steroid for safe maintenance. That's step one, two, three, sequential therapy. It's in the literature. But, the, but when that was used in many parts of the world, not just America, but also Middle East and Asia, about a third of the patient turned out to not able to go to step three. They're stuck with step two, which is non-steroid, like Dovonex on week, weekday, and then clobetazole or you know, something like that on weekend. And amazingly, none of those countries or none of the regions saw any problem with skin atrophy. You know, and also, so one problem with topical steroid, weekend only, that's, you know, with weekend only, it, I think one problem with skin atrophy is probably vanishingly rare. Second problem, adrenal suppression. What happens if somebody uses clobetazole weekend only and suppress the adrenal gland in 40, within the 48 hours? Guess what? Over the next five days, adrenal gland comes back. <laughs> so there is no clinical impact because we worried about adrenal suppression. However, there are two kinds of adrenal suppression. One is physiological, which is the way that your body is supposed to work. The other is pathological, where somebody really abuses topical steroids, very strong one for months after months after months after months after months. And the adrenal gland has shrunken. So when they run out of topical steroid, they become adrenally in, insufficient, or they become cushionoid by, with too much steroid. Well, that's not going to happen with weekend only. So anyway, um, you know, going down to like Chimestone for maintenance is perfectly legitimate, but more and more that I um, become a believer of Steve Feldman, <laughs> in, meaning the difficulty of compliance, I tend, you know, I have a bias toward maybe using superpotent topical steroid less frequently, you know, so people can do it better, easier, um, as opposed to going, going down, but it's totally your choice. Anyway, that's my long discussion. So I have some comments. It was a really oh, great sure. case. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, obviously topicals are our main ways of managing this disease, especially people who have limited disease. And so what, one of the things I think that is really important is counseling patients the proper use of topical steroids and spending a lot of time making sure they understand which treatments they're getting and where they're supposed to be using it. And for me, we have an electronic medical record. Everything I tell them is written out. I have these sort of stock phrases so they know exactly what to do. But where people get themselves in trouble is that uh, they're using the clobazole on the groin, hydrocortisone on the elbows. You know, 
common things. You give someone three prescriptions, they don't know what's for what. And so it's really important to educate the patients carefully. Um, I use a lot of ultrapotent topical steroids, halobazole and, uh, and clobazole as well. Um, you know, we still need to keep our eyes wide open. So when you, the studies that looked at Clobex uh, treatment of scalp psoriasis, the uh, rate of adrenal suppression was about 15%, one five. That's pretty significant. And the question is, what does that mean clinically? Uh, no one really knows. I mean, no one's really done rigorous studies to see what it means to have uh, that type of adrenal suppression uh, on board. It may mean absolutely nothing, but we just don't know. So, so I don't use these things cavalierly, and I do what basically what Dr. Ku does, which is uh, hit them hard for a month, try and get things as clear as I can, and try and back off, and then educate the patients well enough so that what doesn't happen, what I don't want to have happen, is that then they go into other dermatologists and get the stuff refilled from other sources, or they go to their primary doctors, like, oh, yeah, I'll keep on giving this as much as you possibly want, uh, and, then, uh, and then people could get in trouble that way. Uh, but certainly, it's reasonable to try and go strong in the beginning, get them cleared, and then back off. Uh, the second thing about the vehicle, no question about it, uh, you know, vehicle matters a tremendous amount. It's important to talk to your patients about what vehicles they prefer, especially if you're talking about the scalp. Uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds may have different preferences for vehicles. So for example, in my population, Philadelphia, uh, and I always ask the patient, no matter what, I don't make any assumptions, but people uh, who are African American tend to prefer uh, ointments, for example. Uh, Caucasians, of course, usually don't like ointments. Uh, liquids, or in some cases, gels are more appropriate of foams. And so it's important to discuss that with the patient. And then there's also the cost factor. So uh, the sprays and the foams are very elegant. They're very easy to use. Uh, to some extent, they make me nervous in terms of side effects because they can be used more often, right? So clobazole, you're going to give right. up before you get in trouble. <laughs> you know? uh, but, um, but they're extremely expensive. And so you have to be mindful about that as well. But there's nothing more frustrating to a patient uh, than going to a pharmacist and then hearing, you know, with excitement about that, it's going to get clear and realize it's cost them $700 for this little thing of spray that yeah, you gave them. Okay? That's true. So you, you need to be able to prepare them for that and get a sense that that's going to be an issue for them. And, and then final, it's also really important to understand how much of their body is involved with the psoriasis and how much topical steroid you're going to give them. Because, you know, if someone has very widespread psoriasis, 15% of their body, and you give them a little tube of you know, triamcinolone, <laughs> and that's what happens a lot of times. Or maybe you don't give them a little it tube. happens every want, July you, 1st. Right, yeah. yeah, pretty well, much, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you want to give them a big tube and enough to, but to get to the pharmacist, the pharmacist, this is why you have you. You know, that is disheartening for the patient. It really is. Yeah. So the, some pearls from my, from my thoughts. Every July 1st, the re new residents come in and they write 15 grand <laughs> tubes. For you know, with regard to the amount of medication, uh, sometimes it's kind of uh, grades on. You know, they're not like war to war, but they're not just like, you know, two patches. And then you, you wonder, if I write this topical medicine, is it going to be adequate or not? Um, now, one thing that could be used, helpful is that uh, some medications show maximum effectiveness once a day. Other medications, it's known, need, you need twice a day to see the maximum efficacy. And this is not like just marketing or advertisement. It's actually for real. Um, so Gucci medications can you get away with once a day, which means you can cover twice the area. Um, Mometazone either ointment or cream. Um, Taclonex, you know, that's the better methazone. Um, uh, Tazaratine, which is vitamin A, which is not used very much topically. But most other medications you need to use twice a day, otherwise the efficacy will significantly decrease. That's clobetazole, halobetazole, furucinonide, tachymcinolone, desonide, and, and many of the non-steroids, dovonex, vectical, um, you know, off-label, 
you know, protopic LEDL, <laughs> they're all twice a day medications. You know, so, so it might be helpful to know, you know, that once a day medication might actually be more, you know, more feasible if somebody have more areas of involvement. And, and last thing about topical is that, what about non-steroid, you know, um, in, uh, well, I hope you don't mind me using brand name, Dovonex Vectica, which is Caspotrying, um, Caspo, you know, Caspotriol. Uh, they can be used for, for maintenance because they're quite safe. And, especially, and, and they're particularly appreciated by people who have steroidophobia. <laughs> and then if they have, it's, you know, they say, don't give me any steroid. I say, fine, I won't give you any steroid. Just be very patient. You know? <laughs> um, the last one is Tazaratine. You know, Tazaratine is almost forgotten. It's Tazarac. It's available as cream or gel. It's almost forgotten because it doesn't work very well. It's in you know, a pregnancy category X, and it's more irritating than anything you know. You know so so why, the, why am I even talking about it? Well, you know, it, it's definitely not first line. You know, it's better for acne than psoriasis. But when you see patients come back and come back and come back because they're not fully satisfied, the last thing you want is to be run out of tricks. Yes. You, know, you know, that's kind of awkward, you know, seeing the patient and guess what, I got no more tricks in my back. You know, so in that instance, the non-steroid can add your tricks. And so if the patient is non-reproductive, tazeratine works by totally different mechanism than topical steroid or vitamin D. And so instead of saying, I, I got nothing more to offer, you can always add it. Mm -hmm. And it's been shown that tazeratine plus topical steroid works better than topical steroid alone, just like it's been shown Dovonex with topical steroid works better than topical steroid alone. And, and the, the last thing about tazeratine, it is vitamin A, which means it's not very good about getting rid of the redness, but it is particularly get, get, you know, more, more better at getting rid of scaling and thickness, which actually, just like soriatin, make you know, other previous failed agents work better. But it's very important to, for two, th uh, two things. One is to make sure they only put it where they need it, because just like Retin-A, it could be irritating if it gets on a normal skin. And second, tell them don't use it for anti-aging, otherwise you've got no medicine left. <laughs> Occasionally in my practice, as just a general dermatologist, not a subspecialist derm specialty dermatologist, it, it has a place like at the VA and a 65-year-old um, you know, guy who has just a couple plaques on the elbows that are mostly scaly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that's, that's where I've used it with you know, fairly good results on occasion. Some, sometimes the person is just very, very happy that that's, you know, that's where they want to use it and it did the job and it, and it works well in that situation. So. Yeah, cream is better for the body. The tazaratin gel is better for the scalp. And one thing about scalp is, you know, scalp, you get more resistant lesions, you get more scaly lesions. You know, so older people with tough scalp, tazaratin could actually be very helpful with like clobetazole. You know, anytime you think about uh, retinoid, think about what Joe said, retinoid is usually not a complete treatment. It's just therapeutic enhancer. Well, and there, there, are, there are pathophysiologic reasons to think that a retinoid might be protective a little bit of the, the side right, effects right, of the steroid yeah. as well. Yeah, I think I'm going to come at something that Dr. Ku said, which is really, so one of our jobs as providers for patients is to maintain uh, hope that we have lots of things to offer them. And so I always tell patients, you know, I wear this long, these long sleeves for a reason. I have all these tricks up my sleeve. <laughs> and, you know, they live with the disease for decades. And so uh, as, as a clinical pearl uh, or a, a way of practicing clinical medicine, changing therapies from time to time is really important for the patients. You know, they're, they're struggling with whatever you're giving them. You have to be imaginative and go back to the 
medicine cabinet and try something different for the patient, uh, mix things up and see if they'll give them some help in some way. Uh, but you know, oftentimes our job is to make sure the patients still are engaged and have a, a degree of hope that there's new things we could do for them. And that, that's really plausible with psoriasis too. Another thing that as a general dermatologist, you know, I don't see all psoriasis or anything like that, but I always explain to the patients that if there's a silver lining to having psoriasis, it's that, that millions of people and billions of dollars are spent on psoriasis. Uh, if you have PRP, which I showed you some of my patients that I ultimately end up with as kind of the weird dermatologist in Denver, I end up with a whole stable of people with PRP. I can't tell them that there's millions of dollars being spent on research in PRP because there isn't. That'd be a lie. There, there, there's no money being spent on PRP research, but there, there is a lot of money being spent on psoriasis research, and I think that gets to the point that, that both of these uh, fine doctors made about the emotional toll of psoriasis, and so if you can pick your patient up a little bit saying, you know, there's always new developments, there's always money being spent, there's always research being performed and plug them in with the National Psoriasis Foundation and things like that, it, it actually you know, maybe just helps a little tiny bit, not quite as much as an SSRI or anything like that, but it <laughs> maybe t takes the edge off of higher, having psoriasis just a little bit to know that there's millions of people like you, there's billions of dollars, and there's all this research occurring that you couldn't say that with, an, you couldn't say that with a straight face regarding an obscure disease in dermatology, but you can say that about psoriasis. Um, since you mentioned National Psoriasis Foundation, <clears throat> psoriasis patients I find are most depressed, miserable, when they are isolated. But when psoriasis patients get together, it's amazing how they're so much more um, together and collegial, um, in, in almost like, I, I don't want to stereotype, people in the Midwest versus West Coast or East Coast. <laughs> but, you know, uh, as, 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 you know, you know, compared to, uh, you know, people with eczema or people with acne, you know, it's not by accident that National Psoriasis Foundation is such a huge organization, and yet we cannot find where the National Eczema Association is. You know, so, so uh, to, you know, to see if National Psoriasis Foundation have any kind of networking or any kind of resource and then get them hooked up, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a huge help. And, and also, um, one th um, one thing about National Psoriasis Foundation, if I, if I may make like 30 second little plug, you know, every time we charge patients level two, level three, level four, you know, not level four, we never get to level four, you know, level three visit, uh, we should actually thank National Psoriasis Foundation, you know, for letting us have decent income. What happened about more than 10 years ago is that when Medicare came out with this whole point system to justify our charge. The entire skin surface was one point. And so dermatologists would have no way of making any money other than the lowest and of the lowest charge, including all dermatology providers. Of course, American Academy of Dermatology complained. You know, dermatologists complained. Guess what? Medicare just totally ignored, never responded to AAD or anybody. So only, and then the National Psoriasis Foundation actually intervene with their lobbies. They do, they do have lobbying. And they say, we represent 2 to 3% of US population. And if our patients get shitty care, you know, the, you might be out of your office. <laughs> no, no, they didn't quite did it that way. But, but anyway, so, so only person who actually got the response that we understand, we're gonna make this one skin thing into many things, right leg, left leg, right arm, left arm, stomach, you know, that is, uh, Gail Zimmerman, who, who was the CEO of the National Psoriasis mm -hmm. Foundation, because 
in government listen to voters. But when, when the providers try to push, they think we're just pushing for self-interest. You know, so everything, you know, the, the, every time we charge anything more than the minimum, uh, I think it, that has something to do with National Services Foundation impact. But they're too humble to tell you that. So anyway. How have the uh, reimbursement issues with phototherapy affected? Oh, uh, last year, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, they threatened to, to decrease significantly, but they ended up decreasing about only about 8% or so. And then Excima laser, they, they decreased about 3%. Has that impacted accessibility for people in your um, area? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it, 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 that's, you know, that doesn't impact too much. I think it's too early to say. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, so if you look at phototherapy as a practice over the last two decades, the use of phototherapy has gone down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so we, and we do a lot of these sort of studies where we survey patients providers, and most physicians take care of psoriasis patients, and most patients, if you're standardized patients, still prefer phototherapy as the first-line treatment for the disease because we perceive it as being very safe. Um, but the number of people providing phototherapy communities is going down, down, That's what down. I worry about. And, yeah. uh, and so it's a real challenge for caring for people with psoriasis in the United States these days. If most people just do not have access to uh, adequate phototherapy treatment if that's the therapy they want to choose. Um. You know, uh, just putting a little plug in for the phototherapy. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Since you, uh, you know, phototherapy is one of the rare things that can be done in dermatologist's office. You know, where it's almost like you know, it doesn't have to be the dermatologist doing it. It could be the PA doing it. It could be the nurse doing it. It could be the phototherapy tech doing it. Uh, you know, so um, as I'm talking here, uh, my phototherapy unit is seeing 100 patients a day. <laughs> You know, if I were more surgeons, I couldn't do that. I have to but, go back to yeah. San Francisco and do each one of them myself. And that, that's the you exception. Know, what I what I lament in Denver is that as they cut the the reimbursement, there's fewer and fewer dermatologists besides the university where I work that, that are interested in doing mm-hmm. doing phototherapy. So you know, you might want to do a little bit of homework to see how much people are actually getting paid for phototherapy, because official uh, rate for UBB and so forth by Medicare is actually about two hundred something per treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you don't get that. However, you, you do, you know, depending on where you practice, you could get fairly, you know, quite a bit of, you know, um, it, it might not be so bad. But well, it's dictated by your region. In That's right, dictated region. by your region. My, our region, I think, is more like along the lines of 40 bucks. <laughs> yeah, we got about $50 treatment. Yeah. You know, yeah. so... Um, uh, but everything's more expensive in San Francisco, for sure. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I haven't done formal academic analysis on it, but I mean, at a major academic center like John has, like we have, we have a major phototherapy treatment center. We could treat a lot of patients, doing 40 to 50 patients a day, and it certainly is, makes sense for our practice. Mm-hmm. But in the community, if you're only t- treating two or three patients you know, a week, right, right, right. it's a yeah, much yeah. D- different true. situation, and you got to maintain the bulbs, you need the space for it. Uh, but, you know, light therapy is no question, it's a major uh, part of the medical dermatologist therapeutic armamentarium. You know, it works for a lot of different conditions, and, and without access to it, then we really can't take care of many of the needs of our patients. Are there any questions from the audience? Anything we could solve in seven minutes? So, yeah. so the question is about tanning beds and heliotherapy in particular. John, you want to take yeah. the first step of this? Uh, you know, heliotherapy, which means sun tanning, <laughs> sunlight, <laughs> um, can be very effective if the patient are given simple you know, um, um, explanation. One, protect their face, because this is where people get skin cancer. 
uh, not, you know, where psoriasis hang around, like, you know, butt or elbows or knee, you know. I mean, this, psoriasis like to come where the sun doesn't hit. You know, so protect this. And the best protection is Mexican hat. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway, physical protection is complete. You know, chemical protection with sunscreen, you know, not so complete. Sombrero. Um, second, you know, t uh, rec you know, ask them to do it around noontime. Let's say between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Because even though visible light is everywhere, what they really want is UVB, which is around noontime. Third, do it skillfully and intelligently. You know, get a piece of paper, record what kind of, you know, whether it is, and then start with whatever the amount of time that they know that they're gonna get burned. So how much light? Simple. As much as you can take without getting burned. You know, so with sunlight, they can even do it every day. Lunchtime, they can do it. You know, so they keep on doing it, keep on doing it, keep on doing it, up and up and up on the time. Until, um, when do you stop going up if you get sunburn? And tell them that the sunburn doesn't happen while they're doing it. It happens a couple hours later, up to 24 hours later. So in 24 hours, if they didn't get burned, they can go up again. You know, so if, if they understand this simple concept, as much as possible but not getting burned, sometimes they can actually get better results than professional dermatology UVB because some dermatologists are very scared. You know, say, so some dermatologists artificially cap the amount, like I'm gonna give more than you know, 400 millijoules or something like that. Then those patients do better with sunlight. So, so the other pearl I have for that is that, so when psoriasis is thick and you're gonna use outdoor natural UVB, using baby oil to thick skin, thick scaly plaques will allow better penetration. Uh, and so I explain that to patients, make sure to put baby oil on the thick plaques, they'll get better penetration. Uh, sunscreen on uninvolved skin or uh, you know Mexican hat, sombrero if we could find one. Um, and then so the other question that comes up in this area is the issue of uh, whether they should go to a tanning bed facility. Uh, and so most tanning beds in my region usually ultraviolet A, which is not very 95%. effective. Yeah. Right, not very effective for psoriasis, and so I usually counsel them against that. Some patients tell me, well, they found a place that actually has ultraviolet B beds. And you see, you know, there is a medical legal issue here you have to be careful about. So I, I usually say it's really against my medical advice, because they go, you say, yeah, you should go to a tanning bed, and they go and they get burned. Uh, I guess who recommended it? <laughs> you yeah. know? And I, I live in Philadelphia where we have more law firms than McDonald's, so <laughs> to use your analogy. Uh, so we are a little bit cautious on those things. And then you also have no control over it. The people will go as often as they want. Uh, and could accumulate toxicities from that. Yeah, I, I would be real, as a guy with a law degree also, I would be careful about that. You know, I, I've been contacted, I get contacted probably twice a week from some attorney for some reason because they want me to participate because of my background. But uh, it does come up sometimes, people doing, you know, natural puva, you know, th things, things like that. It can be, can be dangerous. So you want to be very, very careful about what you get involved with, especially since you're, you know, protocol may be dictated by your supervising doctor. You may want to be real cautious about what you're involved in. Make sure you're comfortable with it. I, I think sunlight is both more effective and definitely cheaper than tanning salon. You know, uh, because tanning salon, it, when it works for psoriasis, it's not because of UVA. You know, UVA is to just give you tan. But the tan actually make it more difficult for you know, UVB to penetrate. So you're actually sabotaging yourself. So why do people get better with tanning salon? 
at least in my opinion, is probably because these light machines are not perfect. So they say it is a UVA machine, and it is a UVA machine, but there's always some contaminant UVB. Yeah. And, and in tanning salon, they don't care if you're down there for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 mm. minutes. So eventually you get enough UVB to do something. But the thing is, you know, noontime sunlight is actually pretty strong because all of you can get sunburn. Yeah. And, and we cannot do phototherapy stronger than sunburn, uh, except for a few of you who's, who was with me on Tuesday with XI Malaysia, but forget about that. You know, for, for whole body light, uh, you, know, you, 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 you cannot do any more aggressive and effective phototherapy than when you get sunburn. So you know for certain that with heliotherapy, if you do it intelligently, you can make it as effective as any dermatology office. You know, so, so, that, that, so I think that's more effective and cheaper. We had another question. The infrared beds are getting a lot of buzz lately, and I've been getting a lot of questions from patients on them. What are your thoughts on them? Infrared beds for psoriasis? I, I think they'd be useless. Um, have yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Infrared means heat. heat. Yeah, heat. You know, that's what keeps the, you know, the, the fried chicken warm <laughs> <laughs> when you go to the cafeteria. No, no, I have to admit. I mean, yeah, there, so you know, if you want to pretend you're there fast is a, food, <laughs> Sorry about that. that. I didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, but there is a, you know, some fringe publication Whopper that says therapy. that you can improve psoriasis <laughs> either with extreme of heat or cold. But, but I, I don't think uh, anybody want to be a fried chicken. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had that one come up either. That's interesting. I, I don't know why it would be useful. Yeah, but so I do counsel my patients so that, you know, if you look statistically, 10% of patients a year will go into remission from their psoriasis for unclear reasons. It eventually comes back. It's not a curable disease. But as a result, there's an enormous amount of uh, snake oil out there, especially in the age of the Internet. You, know, you have 8 million people disease in the country, uh, you know, about 800,000 a year having spontaneous remissions. Yeah. Everyone knows they have a cure. And for a lot of patients, they have to put up with a lot of people saying, oh, you have psoriasis, you have to do this. I heard you do this. It goes away. Why don't you do that? And, and so yeah. it helps to let the patients know what this phenomenon is about, so they're sort of, uh, you know, remember, immunized. Remember the Miralax. Some of you guys probably aren't old enough, but when I was in training, 1997-ish, <clears throat> things like that, there was a, a miracle cure for psoriasis called Miralax, and it came in a little, uh, came in a little, uh, you know, like a carnation instant breakfast, tear open foil package, and, and you were supposed to take this Miralax to your, your pharmacist, and it was going to fix your psoriasis, and when you tore open this little foil package, you, you can Google this, it's, it was called Miralax, it took out a couple dermatologists actually as collateral damage, but uh, inside the package it told the pharmacist to mix this secret powder with clobetazole. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. That, that was the There's another product called Cap in the late 90s that was adulterated clobetazole. So a lot of times things that are highly effective, that alternative, often uh, if you use uh, spectroscopy, which most of us can't do, yeah, you'll, I can. find, yeah, that's uh, right up my alley. you'll find active ingredients in there. Yeah. We, we've, we tested last year, we tested some Mexican creams in Denver. You, you know, I'm the guy that discovered gadolinium and nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. That's my only claim to fame. Mm. So, so, so uh, I, I used to be a chemist. I used to be a chemical engineer, and, and we've tested all kinds of, of miracle cures from Mexico and things like that, and we've more often than not found clobetazole to be the, the A number one ingredient of all those things. Getting back to the infrareds, um, what about patients just trying to get a tan from it? Use Any what? skin cancer risk or anything like that? 
trying to get it's tan. More, from it. more questions uh, about Whopper. Theory. I mean, so I mean, you'll you'll only tan if you're damaging DNA. Uh, that's what the signal for tanning is. So, uh, or if you're on some type of MSH type of therapy. So, uh, if it's tanning them, it means it has ultraviolet B in it, or something worse. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I, I wouldn't I, recommend that as an approach to tanning. It is a response. You know, the melanin response is, is dictated by a need to put more and more melanin on top of the nucleus, and that's right. what that's what the melanin actually does. It, it you know at, at my level, at the microscopic level, puts more and more melanin above the nucleus to try to absorb the light and protect the nuclear material. So, I don't know how you could get that with with this Whopper therapy unless there was some kind of you know DNA damage there. I don't know how that would work. So I have a patient that has pretty severe like implantus of the nails, mm -hmm. and she's really tough. I've tried topical steroids, um, her topic. I haven't tried ILK injections, but any advice? Well, ILK is usually the way to go. I mean, it's, you know, it's really a matter of getting the drug where it needs to be. Uh, so intralesional injections is a thing to do. Uh, most people don't tolerate that well. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, this, sometimes well, systemic therapies potentially could be helpful. Uh, so cyclosporin, if you really want to push something like that, which is not a long-term solution. Uh, sometimes retinoids can be effective, but it's low and slow. It's not an easy thing to treat. Uh, John, maybe you have a different perspective. Um, if the patient is reasonably young and uh, healthy, and especially if it involves multiple nail or a single nail, but the patient is really distressed, uh, I would probably go for cyclosporin at non-wimpy dose. Non-wimpy dose means the numbers of finger in your hand, provided <laughs> that the patient is not obese. Five milligram per kilogram in either BID or, or TID kind of a frequency. And the thing about um, Cyclosporin is, cyclosporin is known to work in dermatology best for two conditions, which is not psoriasis, not eczema. It's actually lichen planus and pyoderma gangrenosum. And this may be a little bit of different opinion, but for those conditions, especially for lichen planus, if you treat it long enough, it's usually a cure. You know, so if you put the patient, let's say this patient is reasonably young and healthy and reasonably slim and not obese, and you put the person on five milligram per kilogram, uh, BID or TID, and then let's say you did it for a couple months, uh, let's say three to six months, that might actually be the end of the problem uh, for long term. And now the thing about cyclosporin is cyclosporin, many people get afraid. If you know, look at a package insert, uh, most people don't realize package insert is not just about dermatology. Package insert is about everything, especially transplant. But in dermatological use of cyclosporin, uh, so far there has not been any documentation of increased risk of cancer except for non-melanoma skin cancer, just like with some biologics. And this is based on more than 10 countries, more than 1,000 patients use cyclosporin for five years continuously. Uh, with a little break in between for psoriasis is published in Journal of Investiga Investigative Dermatology. The, the kidney issues uh, takes a long time to, to actually develop. You know, so within a couple of months, most pe people who are young and healthy would not have the problem. Blood pressure issue, which is the other important thing, blood pressure with cyclosporin, if it goes up at all, slowly, not shoot up. You know, so, um, you know, so, so I, I think that might be, if, if you already exhausted the topical, exhausted the intralegional, you know, a young and healthy person, three to six months of cyclosporin is pretty safe. 
Right, so I think we're at the end of our time. I think yeah. this is a really good discussion. So thank you for your questions, and feel free to grab John or, or I uh, at the end uh, outside. Great.